Exodus 23, beginning at verse 10, as the Lord continues to give instructions to the people of Israel through his servant Moses. This is God's holy word. Hear it. You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat. And whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave, as well as your stranger, may refresh themselves. Now, concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard, and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the appointed time in the month Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Also, you shall observe the feast of the harvest, of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. Also, the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Would you pray with me again, friends? Oh Lord, your word is spread before us. Even as our Bibles are open and these pages are in front of us, we turn our attention to it. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would work mightily as we've read it and as it is preached, as we study it together. We ask that you would work by your Spirit to draw us to Christ and to the end of ourselves to the end of any self-dependence, but rather that we would find in our Lord all sufficiency. Help us to rightly understand your word this day. And all for Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. As we come to this passage, it's interesting. There is some debate in the scholarship about how to best group these different sections in Exodus 23. Now, as you know, if you were to open up a Hebrew Bible... These, these helpful little subheadings that we have in our English Bibles, they're not found in the original Hebrew. Uh, even the chapters, even the numbered chapters that we have were somewhat arbitrarily put in hundreds of years ago. They're not there in the original. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, given how human minds work. And it's simply helpful to have something like that there for our reference. It's perfectly fine and useful to have things like chapter divisions and subheadings. But the subheadings are not divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so there's some debate as to whether these Sabbath laws here in verses 10 through 12, if they belong more naturally with the verses that follow in verses 14 through 19, or if they better underscore what was just said in verses 1 through 9. 
Now, some will argue that verse 13 is the theological point that's being made, and that makes for a natural break or division point in the text, moving from one idea to the next. For my money, a convincing case can be made either way. These Sabbath laws, they do reflect the principles of justice and mercy that were just being described there in verses 1 through 9, but they also relate quite naturally to the liturgical and ceremonial festivals being described in verses 14 through 19. I think a person can group these verses either way with option A or B, and they can make a convincing case for it. So we're going with option B this morning. We're grouping these Sabbath laws together with these laws and instructions about the three national feasts, but there's nothing overwhelmingly crucial riding on that decision. If you think back to what we were studying last Lord's Day evening in the preceding verses, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 23, we thought a lot about mercy and justice and God's care for the oppressed and the vulnerable, and that idea is still very much underscored in his instructions regarding the Sabbath. And really, regardless of whether you like option A or option B, grouping the Sabbath laws with those justice laws or grouping the Sabbath laws with these festival laws, the main thesis statement of everything that we're thinking about this morning is in verse 13. That's the crucial point governing this whole section. Let's look at it again. Verse 13, the Lord says, Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. We've said in the last couple of sermons that these rules and regulations laid out in this section of Exodus, what's called the Book of the Covenant, according to Exodus 24, verse 7, These rules and regulations that are laid out here, they may seem at first to be randomly tossed in there. But actually, these are statues designed to order Israel's national life as a people. And they are all rooted in one or more of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words which Israel has just received from Mount Sinai. They are not as random as it may may first appear to our sensibilities. For instance, the Sabbath laws there in verses 10 through 12 They stem, of course, from a fourth commandment principle about work and rest. Verse 13 really stems from both a first and second commandment principle. You remember, of course, what it says? I am the Lord your God, and I alone, says Yahweh. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols or graven images. You shall not worship them or serve them. That's why verse 13 says, Make no mention of the name of these other gods of the pagans. This, this land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you, the promised land, you're going to be surrounded, Israel. You're going to be surrounded by a lot of paganism and a lot of idolatry. You're going to feel pressed and tempted to conform to the religious practices of these other people. You've just been redeemed out of a land, out of Egypt, where for 400 years you've been steeped in and surrounded by all kinds of idolatrous paganism. So pay it no heed. Pay it no attention. Put it so far away from you. And the Lord is is perhaps bordering on hyperbole here in order to make a very serious point. Put false religion and false worship so far away from you and your habits and your minds that you don't even mention the names of these false gods. My holy people, don't even defile your lips by mentioning their names, much less speak to them in prayer or worship them. That's how far away it should be from you. And then these laws about Israel's cultural and liturgical festivals, they also stem out of a second commandment 
principle. Because what is the fundamental point of the second commandment? Well, the fundamental point is worship God his way. Only worship God in the way that he wants to be worshipped and relate to him the way in which he wants to be related. And so these annual festivals and ceremonies, he's saying, Israel, do them like this. And so if we have that understanding and we bear that in mind, these odd commands like the ones we find in verses 18 and 19, I think they start to make a little bit more sense. And that's our first point to see here this morning is that in this passage, we are given some instructions to worship God sincerely and rightly. We're being told to worship God sincerely and rightly. Again, these commands, particularly those we read there in 18 and 19, they may seem a little bit strange at first. But God is simply applying and extrapolating in specified detail what it means for Israel to put him first in their lives and to flee from the idolatrous paganism of the surrounding nations. That's what's driving these odd or obscure instructions that we find here. Verse 18, God says Israel is to be careful not to mix the blood of their sacrifices with anything leavened, nor are they to leave the fat of their sacrifices until morning. That is to say, they are to pay attention to their worship. And as one commentator says, do not offer polluted or putrid sacrifices. God wants our hearts and our minds fixed on him, and he wants our best, close quote. And so verse 19, the best of your first fruits, of your ground, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. In other words, brothers and sisters, do not make the worship of God to be an afterthought. Don't bring the leftovers. Whatever happens to just be hanging around. Be intentional. Be deliberate with forethought, with careful purposefulness. Bring your worship to God, your first fruits. Now, there's all kinds of application here, I imagine. Bringing God your best worship. How does that look like in our lives? What does that mean? And people it might, in their minds, they, they, their minds might gravitate to how we dress for worship or the kind of financial gifts or offerings that we are giving, giving God our best. And there's application there, I think. But I wonder if it's not predominantly in the vein of how our Westminster Larger Catechism puts it in question 160. The catechism there, speaking about how we should approach the hearing of the word, we who sit under the preaching of the word of God, what's required of us? That's what the catechism question is getting at there in particular. How should we approach the preaching of God's word? Now, it's speaking narrowly about preaching, of course, but I think the counsel there is more broadly applicable and rightly applicable to the kind of worship that we render God. Here's what the catechism says, 160. We should attend upon the preaching of the word of God with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what we hear by the scriptures Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it. Hide it in our hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in our lives. If I could put it another way, do we roll up in here on Sunday morning, barely sloughing out of bed, with nary a thought to getting our minds and souls in a place we are preparing to meet with God. Nary a thought as to the words we are singing in the psalms and hymns, 
Are we just mindlessly mouthing these words of praise, these sung prayers to our maker? Are our minds engaged and praying right along with the man who is leading the congregation in prayer? Or are our minds drifting, thinking about what's for lunch after the service? Are we following along in our Bibles, thoughtfully reading along with the minister as the scripture is being read? Now, folks, I get it. Trust me. As a family with four young children, I get it. There are mornings, believe me, there are mornings in God's providence where we are all barely here on time. But ordinarily, and there's that good Presbyterian word, ordinarily, in general, as we approach the Lord God Almighty in worship, are we doing it thoughtfully, intentionally, with due preparation, with a deliberate attitude to worship God heartily and sincerely with our hearts and minds and affections and attention? Or does God just get our leftovers and not the first fruits? Because we couldn't be bothered to turn off Netflix before 1 o'clock in the morning last night. I say that from a place of conviction, not accusation. How might we, as God's people, better render our first fruits to him in this new covenant era, the first fruits, as Exodus 23 says? How might we better render unto God the first fruits of which he is deserving, so deserving? And then there's this command in verse 19 about not cooking a goat in its mother's milk. It's a rather awkward way to end the sermon passage this morning. It's a little bit abrupt. What's going on there? Well, it's actually not so bizarre when we understand that this was part of pagan Canaanite worship. This is how the pagans did it. And again, God wants us to worship him, his way, not the world's way. Approach the king on his terms, the Lord says. There's that second commandment principle again. He wants to be first in our lives and first in our affections. And so he says, pay attention to all that I have said to you, verse 13. Don't worship me like this in verse 18 and verse 19. That's what you're going to see all around you in the culture. That's what you're going to see all around you in Canaan. You're going to be inclined to imitate their habits. Don't do it like them, my people. Pay attention to all that I have said, verse 13. Do it like this. I love how one commentator put it. He said, we have come to so cherish the Lord Jesus Christ that his commands have become our delight. And our God-given duties increasingly become our most basic desires. We love him, and so we want to please him. And we find there to be, as we walk with Jesus, less and less room in our hearts or on our lips for any rival to him, close quote. You see, the agenda of this passage, the agenda of God in giving these instructions to Israel is that by structuring their lives around these Sabbaths and festivals, God is discipling them. He's training them. That's what discipline or discipleship means after all. It means to train. We discipline our bodies. We train our bodies. Yes, he is training them to orient their lives and center their lives around him and to worship him alone and to trust him. He's training them to trust him. And he's training them to trust his promises and his ways. Worship God sincerely and rightly. And part of that involves trusting him. And how does he do that? Well, in part, he's training them by instituting these two sets of rhythms in the national life of Israel. As many commentators observe, one rhythm regarding Sabbaths, or Sabbath, and the second rhythm regarding festivals. 
So that's the first thing that we need to see here this morning. Worship God sincerely and rightly. That's his agenda in this passage. He wants his people to worship him sincerely and rightly. But then secondly, he is training them. He is discipling them. And so secondly, we see that they are discipled. God's people are discipled by weekly Sabbaths. There in verses 10, 11, and 12. In verses 10 and 11, we find instructions regarding agriculture and the cultivation of the land in Israel. They are to work the land for six years, and then on the seventh, allow the land to lie fallow. Leave the land alone for a cycle and let it rest. Don't use it to grow. Let the land recover and store organic matter and retain moisture. Disrupt pest cycles and so forth. It's, it's good farming practice. But according to our text, it's just rest for the land why this practice is commended. Not because it is a good farming practice, but simply on its own face value. The land needs rest. They are to do it, in the second part of verse 11, that the poor of your people may eat. So not just rest for the land, but because, verse 11, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. The farmer leaves his field alone, one year and seven, and whatever crops may be harvested by the poor and the needy. Whatever crops may pop up may be harvested by the poor and needy. I like how one commentator put it. There's a concern here that the land of promise be indeed a land of plenty and a land of provision and meet the needs of God's people, especially the poorest and the most marginalized. Close quote. And that reminds us yet again, brothers and sisters, of this notion that we've encountered several times before in this section of the book of Exodus. And that is that God is deeply concerned for the weak and the impoverished and the vulnerable among his people. We were thinking about the idea of afterthoughts just a few moments ago. Don't let God or the worship of God become an afterthought to you. Well, do note here, as often as God repeats it in Exodus, that care for the vulnerable is not an afterthought for him. It's a good reminder. As we've mentioned before, I think we mentioned it just last week. The abuse of a good thing does not negate the right use of the good thing. Abuse does not negate the rightful use. I know, and you know too, that words like vulnerable and marginalized are buzzwords, and these concepts have been conscripted into nefarious and unbiblical agendas in many cases. These terms will sometimes get used to emotionally manipulate other people, tender-hearted people. Terms like marginalized get way overused and wrongly employed, and what happens as a result Our hearts and our sympathies get calloused, don't they? Let's be careful, brethren. Let our hearts not grow cold and cynical. Let's be attuned to, let's be on the lookout for, and continue to care for the genuinely marginalized, the wounded, the hurting, and vulnerable among God's people. There's all kinds of real and legitimate need. There really is. And God's people ought to care for the least of these, because God does. It's explicit here in Exodus chapter 23. And frankly, there's no greater clarity on this aspect of the heart of God than in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus himself. You might remember Matthew's gospel, chapter 12. Jesus was numbered among the poor and the marginal. We read that passage just a few minutes ago. These poor and needy people who needed to glean heads of grain, pluck heads of grain in the fields on the Sabbath day just to quell the hunger in their rumbling stomachs. 
And if there is anybody here today who falls among the poor, the exploited, the vulnerable, who feels like an afterthought and a bother to the rest of society, the Holy Scripture is here to assert in no uncertain terms that, brother or sister, you are not an afterthought to Almighty God, who is the father to the fatherless and the defender of the orphan and the widow. Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Dr. Wilborn just preached on that for us a few months ago. That wonderful verse from 2 Corinthians. He, Christ, became poor and humble, stooping down low, condescending to us in our humanity, placed in a feeding trough upon his birth, the Son of Man having no place to lay his head. Christ, knowing the depths of poverty beyond any human experience or comprehension, even to the point of his agony and anguish of soul. And he went through it all, and he endured it all, and he underwent it all. Why? So that you might become rich. That is, that you might become the recipients of his lavish and profligate grace, abounding mercy, his abounding mercy, and that you might be his. Child of God, no matter your status, you are not an afterthought to the Savior, and he is a perfect Savior for you, even you. And as you look down at verse 12, God reminds his people of the weekly cycle of the Sabbath day. What is the Sabbath for? It's for rest. It's for rest. Rest for working livestock, rest for children or servants laboring on the land or in the household. Even rest, did you notice, for foreign residents who've come to dwell in the land of Israel. Now, we thought long about this a few weeks ago when we studied the fourth commandment. That fundamentally, the basis for this Sabbath command is the compassion in God for his people. God wants his people to rest. He wants us to rest. It almost goes without saying how harried and frenetic are our lives. Go, go, go. Do, do, do. Always on, on, on. Our God knows our frame. And he remembers that we are dust. And even when we think we don't need to rest, our Father knows better. And he has made a gracious provision in the Sabbath day, this Lord's day, on which he calls us to rest. Rest our bodies and to rest our souls in him. Now, this is, as we've noted before, friends, one of the most unpopular teachings in our time, even within the church. It's certainly one of the most neglected disciplines in contemporary Christianity, Lord's Day observance. And it's a fascinating thing because on the one hand, we acknowledge our harried lives and our exhaustion. We know how tired we are. We know how busy we are. We know how nice it would be to stop and slow down. But then on the other hand, we chafe against an understanding of the fourth commandment, which would call us to cease. The word Sabbath from the Hebrew word means cease. It stems from a word meaning cease. We chafe against this notion that the day should be different than the frenzied standard of every other day of the week. Why is this? Well, I fear, at least in America, it's because many Christians consider the Lord's Day to be a burden rather than a blessing. They've come to view it not as a day of rest and gladness, not a day that is full of Christ and grace and spiritual refreshment and renewal and delight, but instead they've come to view it as a day of drudgery, of obligation, of weariness and restriction. 
Ah, Sunday. I'm not allowed to do this. Instead of viewing it as, here's a day when I get to meet with Christ. When, when I get to revel in Christ and all his benefits. When I get God to myself together with all the saints. What a day this is that he's given me. What a joy. And if our view of the Lord's Day is such that we view it as a wearying day of obligatory drudgery, well, then no wonder we resent it, if that's our view. Here comes Sunday again, another day where I'm not allowed to do X, Y, Z, another day where I have to go to church, another day where I have to go to worship. But remember, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Lord didn't make up a rule and then create you because he needed someone to obey it. That's not how it works at all. No, the Sabbath was made for you. It was made for your benefit, your good, your rest, your refreshment. It is a gift of grace from a God who knows you need to rest. And you need him. And you need to not go and do and work 24-7, but your soul needs to meet with your God and to bask in his glory and in his grace. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if some of us might be convicted, or at the very least challenged, if we might make better use of the Lord's day. What I'm encouraging you to do is to take advantage of it, brothers and sisters. Take advantage of it. Squeeze every lost, every last drop of gospel grace out of it that you can wring out. What better excuse do you need to say, God said rest from my labors? So I will. And instead, I'm going to delight in him. Do this, do this, participate in this, someone else says. God said no. God said I need to rest, and so I will. What better excuse, what better motive do you need than that? It's not often that we can use the word exploit positively. But here I think we can. Brothers and sisters, exploit the Lord's day. Leverage every minute that you can, the whole of the day for the good of your soul. Robert Murray McShane, he famously said, This is the reason why we call the Sabbath a delight. A well-spent Sabbath we feel to be a day of heaven on earth. We love to spend the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except as so much as is taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. We love to rise early on that morning and to sit up late that we may have a long day with God, close quote. You know, back in Matthew 12, one commentator pointed out, Jesus says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Right before that, in Matthew 11, we read it. Do you remember what he says? It's when Jesus has to say to the crowds, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, the Sabbath pattern is ultimately a gospel pattern. The reality of Sabbath points us to the character of God in his mercy and in his provision for our need. Our bodies and souls need rest, yes, but we also need rest from dead works so that we might serve the living and true God. Rest which comes only from a peace secured by Christ, the one who has made God and sinners reconciled. The Sabbath points us ultimately to Christ and the gospel and how God has provided for our deepest need. Grace for our soul's refreshment 
and provision for our soul's redemption forever. And it comes through him who is the Lord of the Sabbath. So that's the second thing, discipled by weekly Sabbaths. But then thirdly and briefly, in verses 14 to 17, God is also discipling Israel by these yearly festivals. God instituted three festivals here in our text. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, verses 14 and 15. The Feast of Harvest in the first part of verse 16. And then the Feast of Ingathering at the end of verse 16. Unleavened Bread is connected to the broader uh, celebration of the Passover, of course. The people were to sweep their homes clean of all yeast, of all leaven, and make unleavened loaves to eat for seven days. Why? Well, when you need to bake bread in a hurry, you don't bother with the yeast. Hence, unleavened bread at Passover. At the Exodus, Israel had to flee Egypt and get ready in a hurry. They didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. And then the Feast of the Harvest, that was held in early summer, and it was focused on the very beginning, the beginning of the wheat harvest. That's why it's also called the Feast of the First Fruits. The celebration involved the taking of the very first grains of the harvest and waving them before the Lord. And that was a tangible way of saying, this harvest, Lord, this harvest is a gift from you. It's your provision. You've given us this, and we acknowledge our dependence on you. And then there's that third feast, the Feast of the Ingathering. Now that, uh, the Feast of the first fruits is at the beginning of summer, but the ingathering is held in the autumn at the end of the harvest, when all the last portions of the fruit of the land are fully gathered in, in a time of great celebration. Now multiple commentators point out here that there is a kind of progression as we move through the year following along this festival calendar. It begins with unleavened bread, right? Very minimal, very basic, very bare, but it ends with lavish feasting. Well, that says something about God and his grace, doesn't it? One man said, salvation is always getting bigger and better as God piles one blessing on top of another. That's part of what we're being taught here. There's a progression. That's the way it is with the grace of God. He saves us, and then what? We're just left to ourselves? No. There's always progression in our salvation. There's growth. There's betterment. Salvation is always getting bigger and better, as the man said. Now, that doesn't mean that your life experience will necessarily get better, easier, smoother, more pleasant. And perhaps it might be quite the opposite, Christian. But your soul, there are better days ahead for you by the grace of God. Remember our study last year on the golden chain of salvation? That, that wonderful verse from Romans chapter 8 about the salvific progress that God ordains and orchestrates in our lives. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, these he also called. Those whom he called, these he also justified. Those whom he justified, these he also glorified. There's progress. One of my favorite verses, Philippians 1, verse 6, He that began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God does not leave us how he found us, brothers and sisters. He redeems us in order to transform us, to renew and restore us. And in Christ Jesus, there is grace upon grace upon grace. From unleavened bread, bare and minimal, to ingathering, the first sampling of what is to come, to the fullness of plentiful harvest, so is the grace of God at work to produce the salvation of God in the life of his child. 
One of the amazing things about Israel's pilgrim feasts is that each of them contains in in miniature, in microcosm, the gospel story. And it points to it. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, part of Passover, often yeast or leaven is connected with the growth of evil or the spread of sin. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, Jesus said. And so whenever the Israelites celebrated this feast, they would sweep the yeast out of their homes. God's people were making a clean sweep, so to speak, getting rid of the old life of sin. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ our Passover lamb sacrificed for us. New life has come. Worship in sincerity and truth. Or the Feast of the Harvest. It's also called Pentecost in the New Testament, which comes from the Greek word for 50 per Leviticus 23. And so in the year A.D. 33, 50 days after Passover, Jerusalem was crammed with people. And God fulfilled the promise that Jesus had made, and he poured out his spirit on the church. Jesus had said, the fields are white unto harvest, so pray that the Lord of the harvest, that he may send out laborers into the harvest. And there on that Pentecost day, on that feast of the harvest, God poured out his spirit. And by the spirit, he has been gathering and he will gather people from every tribe and tongue. And of course, the feast of the ingathering, which by New Testament times had come to be called simply the feast, it points to the great and coming day of Christ's final harvest, At that feast, a a, a grand procession would go through Jerusalem and they would draw water from the pool of Siloam and they would pour it out at the temple. And John 7, verse 37, he tells us that on that last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus there identifying himself as the water of life. The great fulfillment of all that that testament or all that that festival pointed to. And so even in this Old Testament festal calendar, in these rhythms of rest and worship, of pardon for sin and resting from dead works, of cleansing and holiness, pointing to the Passover sacrifice, pointing to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, of the great ingathering, when his elect shall be drawn to the great fulfillment to which all these Sabbaths and all these festivals have pointed. And all of this, to Christ himself, and they shall be ushered into what has been called the Lamb's High Feast. You see, brothers and sisters, even from this little odd passage this morning regarding Sabbath-keeping and mercy and annual liturgical festivals, we are being confronted with the Lordship of Christ and his claims upon the lives of his people. We are being discipled. We are being trained toward Christ, you see. Once again, this text calls us to keep God's ways to believe his promises, to cling to Christ by faith so that we might be redeemed from dead works, to serve the living and true God, and that we might enjoy him and all the splendors of his great salvation. Praise God for his word to us today. Let's pray. Lord, truly, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.